The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 27th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor said again to them, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See see to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among them by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. 
The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, This man is calling for Elijah. At once one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the other says, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's son. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you realize that this morning that you have engaged in an act of political protest? Don't worry, I won't tell anybody. Yes, nearly 2,000 years after the fact, you have reenacted a radically subversive act just by carrying your palms into the sanctuary this morning and shouting Hosanna, you have engaged in an act of protest. What do I mean? Well, Palm Sunday, as we've heard in our readings, is an epic clash between the Roman Empire, the religious authorities of the time, and Jesus and the movement that he created. As we hear in the readings, the religious authorities conspire against Jesus to have him killed. The Roman governor, Pilate, interrogates him and has him beaten and flogged. The soldiers mock him by putting a robe on him and a crown of thorns. He's handed over and crucified, a form of Roman execution, which we'll hear more about on Good Friday. But before all of that, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a borrowed donkey, and people shout Hosanna and lay palms down on the ground before him. Now, this was not only an act of adoration for Jesus, welcoming what most people still considered a great prophet into the holy city of Jerusalem. It was also a form of resistance and protest against the Roman Empire because the people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as if he were the Roman emperor himself. Indeed, the Roman emperor at the time claimed to be the Son of God, and would have been welcomed into the cities of the empire in much the same way with pomp and fanfare. And Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, is welcomed into Jerusalem in much the same way, but as a very different kind of humble king. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a protest, besides the one we had just now, but it's not unlike what I imagine the scene must have been outside of Jerusalem that day. There's a buzz and an energy and an intensity, and there are many different people, strangers to one another, yet gathered for a common cause, but for different reasons. There are chants, perhaps like Hosanna, that 
rise up and run their course and fade out and they're replaced by other chants and there's every manner of homemade sign that's carried around made of cardboard or poster board or even lined paper. It's orderly, but there's a frenetic feeling about it. There's laughter and joy as well as seriousness of purpose. There's some organization and there's also a lot of going with the flow. There's a sense of hope and vulnerability, struggle and danger all at the same time. And I imagine that's something of what it was like that day on the road outside of Jerusalem. And there were many other ways that the Jesus movement and later the Christian church subverted the Roman Empire. For instance, at the very end of our gospel reading from Matthew, we hear it's the Roman soldiers standing at the foot of the cross who say, truly this man was God's son, not the powerful emperor to whom they swore allegiance, but this peasant Jew hanging on a cross. Another example is the term gospel, uh, which we use to describe the books that tell us the story of Jesus. But gospels were a form of writing invented by the Roman Empire to bring the good news of military victories. The church later transformed gospels to be the good news of God's unconditional love. And then there is the central act of our faith, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that we recount throughout this week. This form of nonviolent resistance against violence and hate and fear and cruelty against powers and principalities and all the forces that defy God. You know, I've recently finished reading a really great book by a Lutheran pastor named Mitri Raheb, who's the pastor of the Lutheran church in Bethlehem. Uh, Not the Bethlehem of 309, but the Bethlehem in the Holy Land. And he actually preached here a couple years ago, and you might remember, he was wonderful, and he was selling copies of his book, which I bought, and then only a year and a half later, finally got around to reading. Um, That's a really good book, and it's called Faith in the Face of Empire, the Bible Through Palestinian Eyes. And it's given me so many insights into the Bible and framed for me this Holy Week experience in new ways. In this book, he reminds us that the land of Palestine, the Holy Land, has been occupied by empires and empire after empire after empire for like 3,000 years, nearly as long as civilizations have even existed in that part of the world. It's been occupied by Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, the Crusaders, the Ottomans, and more. It's a land and a people that are well acquainted with empires and not just the Roman Empire. And while these empires might simply be part of our history lessons that we hear in school, like my kids, they're deeply rooted in his and his people's lives. And he describes Palestine, the Holy Land, in four ways. He says, first, it's a buffer zone, um, a land between major empires, and often becomes a battlefield when those empires clash and run into each other. He said it's a land that's been occupied for centuries by empire after empire, and it's constantly been divided and redivided. He writes, being largely an occupied land, liberation from occupation is a central theme throughout history and plays a major role in the Bible. And we read in the Bible that it's to this place and this land and these people that God chooses to be revealed, to identify with the land and its people. Palestinians, which now we think mostly of Muslim and Arab, but includes historic Palestinians, Jews and Christians, later Islam. And he says, the context of ongoing oppression of forever living in the shadow of these empires 
brought about the birth of both Judaism and Christianity and across the sea, Islam. And it's to this land and these people that God comes. These are the land and the people that God takes as God's own. And I'd like to share with you just a little bit of, uh, or maybe more than just a little bit, of what he writes. And, uh, you know, as techy as I am, I still like to read paper books. So I can uh, underline and highlight and make notes, and I write down in the margins. And in this particular place in the book, all I wrote, what I wrote in the margin simply was, amazing, exclamation point. I wanted to share it with you. He says, this God, the God of Palestine, our God, appeared to be weak compared to other gods. He seemed forever to be on the losing end, just like his people. This God was almost interchangeable with his people. His weakness was shown in theirs, and their defeat was his. This God was a loser. He lost almost all wars. In short, this God did not appear to be up to the challenge of these various empires. The revelation the people of Palestine received, he says, was the ability to spot God where no one else was able to see him. When his people were driven as slaves into Babylon, they witnessed him accompanying them. When his capital, Jerusalem, was destroyed and his temple plundered, they saw him there. When his people were defeated, he was also present. The salient feature of this God was that he didn't run away when his people faced their destiny, but remained with them, showing solidarity and choosing to share their destiny. And ultimately, Jesus revealed this God on the cross in a situation of terrible agony and pain, when he was brutally crushed by the empire and hung like a rebellious freedom fighter from a tree. He says, for the people of Palestine, this meant that defeat in the face of empire was not ultimate defeat. It meant that after the country was devastated by the Babylonians, when everything seemed lost, a new beginning was possible. Even when the dwelling place of God was destroyed, God survived the destruction, developing in response a dwelling that was indestructible. And when Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That soul-rending plea was just the prelude to resurrection. He says this enabled the people of Palestine to survive all defeats. It made the defeat lose its teeth, death lose its sting, and empire lose its victory. It ensured that empires were incapable of celebrating their victories because while they crushed the people they occupied, they weren't able to crush their spirits. It's like what we hear in Paul's letter to the Philippians, that Jesus, even though he was the Son of God, equal to God in every way, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross. And this is the very context, literally the ground on which this Palm Sunday and the remainder of Holy Week happen. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and cleanses the temple, gives some of his most important teaching, shares his last supper with his disciples, goes through Good Friday, is laid in a tomb, and then on the third day on Easter Sunday rises again. And we see that this week is in part about standing up to the empire, the powers and the principalities of this world up against our human frailties and sin to meet them with the force and the power of love. It is following the commandment that Jesus gives his disciples on Monday, Thursday, love one another as I have loved you. 
It's saying amidst the empires of our time, against the violence of this age, against religious practices that oppress rather than free people, that there's another way, the way of Jesus, and it's a way of love and peace. And this week, Jesus takes everything that his world and our world can throw at him. He takes it all in order to reveal its true nature and to redeem us from it and to show us a better way to live and to love. And this week we are reminded that there is more to our world and more to life than what we see splashed on cable news or our Twitter streams. There's another way and another reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God, and he lays it out for us this week as we watch him journey into Jerusalem and to the cross and rise again. Holy Week itself is an act of resistance and protest against sin and against death as we gather around the central act of our faith, the cross, where Jesus lays down his life for us. As Jesus showed us throughout his life and in each step of this holy week, every act of love is an act of resistance. Every act of love is an act of protest. So let us now set our faces towards Jerusalem and journey together with Jesus. Amen.